Um, as I uh, stated earlier, this is a season of Advent that we're entering into, and uh, we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke for this entire month, and then we'll return to the letter of 1 John at the first of the year. Um, if you didn't know, uh, the word Advent literally means the arrival of a notable person or event. It's the arrival of a notable person or event, and I can't imagine uh, a more notable person or event than the incarnation of the Son of God to this earth about 2,000 years ago. And so every single Christmas we remember, as the Gospel of John tells us, that Jesus, the eternal Word of God, took on flesh. Jesus is eternal God who has become man. And, and while we rejected God and desired to move away from him, the Christmas story shows us that God has drawn near and nearer than we could have ever imagined or fathomed. Uh, there are parts of the Bible, if we're being honest, that are really, really hard to believe, not because they're cheap and small, but because they are audacious and glorious. And this is one of those truths. Uh, C.S. Lewis called the incarnation the grand miracle. It's the grand miracle. It's hard to fathom. And because Jesus came the first time, we now look back with one eye upon his first coming and with the other eye, don't try to do this, but if you could imagine, with the other eye, we look ahead, you know, to his second coming. And in the middle of those two advents, um, we have a completely different reality that we're living in now. Just as Rick and Amy shared for us a bit earlier, we now are hope-shaped people in the meantime. That's why I think telling this Christmas story and this season of Advent is so important every single year. We need the repetition. We really do. We are storytellers, and when you stop telling stories, you begin to forget them. If you hadn't noticed, uh, Christmas is all about repetition, isn't it? It's like all about it. Um, you, ate, you eat the same cookies every single year. You put up the same decorations, right? You listen to the same Christmas albums that you always have. Uh, in our home, it's, it's Nat King Cole, it's the Carpenters. I mean, I even bust out a little Sandy Patty, you know, because I grew up with Sandy Patty, right? You go to the same places every year, like Peacock Lane or the Grotto, you know? You watch the same Christmas movies, like Home Alone, or if you're a big Nick Cage fan like me, you know, Family Man, that's up there at the top, right? Christmas is, is all about repetition. We watch the same things, right? I, I suggest to you that the reason for that is not simply nostalgia, but it's because we need to re-ingrain, we need to reimagine and re-wonder at the story again. Uh, because if we don't, we will not only forget it over time, but we will cease to understand how essential and life-altering the story is for us. We will forget what Christmas really means. What does it really mean? Well, it means God is with us. It means God is, is with us. He's come near. It means that God not only sees us, but when he's, once he's seen us, he's, he's moved towards us, if you will. Right? Do you, do you believe this? Do you really believe this? It, it can be really hard to believe that, can it? Because we often go through seasons and stretches of time where God seems distant and not very near. Where, where God seems silent and not very communicative, right? Maybe, maybe that's you. Maybe you're weary this morning. And many of the people in, that you're going to find here in Luke chapters 1 and 2 very well could be very weary. But as the Christmas classic song goes that we've already sang this morning, 
a thrill of hope the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. This is my hope that this month is a season where you not only press into this story, but that the Spirit of God presses this story into you. Okay? Luke wants you to have certainty that this story is true. That's what you see in verse four. He's writing to a guy named Theophilus that you may have certainty, right, concerning the things that you have been taught. Luke wants you to have certainty that this story is true and he wants it to wrap around your heart because if it does, it'll change your life. So where does the gospel writer Luke begin his Christmas narrative? Well, it's not with Mary and it's not with shepherds in a field. It's with an old, childless, married couple. And it really begins in a temple. And so if it, uh, we're just going to walk through this story. It might feel a little different than usual uh, from your experience so far. But uh, if you want to know a little bit of where these big breaks are in this story, um, these are the questions that I feel like need to be raised along the way. So in this first, st- this first five verses here, five through ten, we see in this question is really raised, what do you do when God seems silent? Verses 11 through 20, I want us to ask the question, how do you respond when God speaks? In verses 21 through 25, the question, what does God do when he speaks? He's not a God that just is all talk, you know. His speaking creates things. Uh, so first, verses one through, or 5 through 10, asking the question, what do you do when God seems silent? Let's read here, beginning in verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. So we see here that these things, what you're seeing here, what you're reading about, they took place during the days of Herod, king of Judea. So this story is not a fictitious story, right? We're landed right in the middle of history, a real king, Herod, right? But these words also convey a sense of weight because under Herod, Israel was oppressed almost as severely as Israel was oppressed under the reign of Pharaoh in Egypt, right? This is, a, this is a pretty brutal pretty brutal king, okay? This is a guy who was famous for murdering members of his own family, and this is the same king that's gonna issue the decree to have all the kids slaughtered because he's trying to kill the Messiah when Jesus is born, right? This was a dreadful period in history, okay? To top it off, during this time, Israel had not heard a word from God for about 400 years. So, so not since the prophet Malachi Have they heard a present word from the Lord, right? So 400 years of silence, of not hearing from God, right? Think about that for a second. 400 years. That would be the equivalent of not hearing from God since 1619. Do you even know what life was like in 1619? Okay? I looked back this week into some things, right? Democracy was actually birthed in 1619 in Jamestown, Virginia, 400 years ago, Right? But, but this was, Jamestown was only 12 years old at the time. I mean, this is how long ago this is. Like, you would still be British, right, 400 years ago, okay? Just try to imagine a world without the convenience of things like electricity, 
running water, cars, phones, bathrooms, shopping centers, clothing stores. Could you imagine building your own shelter and making your own clothes as you like come to the Americas or something? Like I would die, right? I would not survive, right? I mean, there are no lights at night, no refrigerators, no microwaves, no Disney Plus, no Netflix, right? No Seahawk football, right? The world was a better place, okay? No internet, no Fred Meyer, right? Drinking coffee like wasn't even a thing, right? It wasn't even, I think it was barely invented in Africa at the time, right? Nobody hiked or camped. All of life was hiking and camping, right? Okay, the coolest thing that was being invented was the refracting telescope, okay? Things like the pocket watch, the piano, the thermometer, steamboats, even guillotines and the smallpox vaccination were not even invented yet, okay? 400 years is a long time. Right? Seriously, just think of the weight of that. I mean, I can get annoyed when my Amazon Prime package doesn't arrive in the two days it told me it was going to. Can you imagine crying out to God in prayer daily and weekly for years and years and years and years in silence? Right? But here we find people gathered outside the temple asking God to break the silence. And we find a priest right? In verses 8 through 10, I'm a visual person, so if you want to get an image here, I did not draw this up, okay? But this is what uh, the, the dimensions and the aspects of the court were. So we people we had outside the temple, and then uh, there are number two, you have the altar of sacrifice. But, but Zechariah, once in his lifetime, this is like the climax of his career, because there's about 18,000 priests, right? It just fell, the lot fell to him. He got to go in this one time, right, to the altar of incense, burn incense, offer up prayers on behalf of the people of Israel. It's like the one time this will ever happen in his life. Like he's peaking right now in his career, okay? And he's going in to this altar of incense, offering up prayers. This is what we find here. They're still seeking God in the midst of silence. And this priest, Zechariah, his wife, Elizabeth, who's the daughter of a priest, we're told, uh, they can relate to this kind of silence of God in more ways than one. And what do they, how do they wait in their silence? What do they do? Because God is silent for a very long time, they do everything right. right? They fear God, they trust God. We're actually told that they are righteous and they walk blameless. Blameless does not mean sinless. It just means that they were genuine people, right? They were the real deal. What you saw was who they really were when no one was looking. And what you witnessed were two people that have devoted their lives to faithfully obeying and worshiping God. And so the way Zechariah and Elizabeth are described is the same terms you use to describe other people that were righteous in the Old Testament, people like Noah and Abraham and Job. It's the same language. These people truly are the epitome of a believer. They are believers. Well, right? They must be really lucky then that good things happen to good people, right? That's what we all know. Well, verse 7 says what? They had no child. Why? They didn't want kids. They just didn't want them. Well, no, Elizabeth was barren. And Luke is really kind here, and he says, well, these folks, they were advanced in years, right? The biological clock had ticked for so long that any hope of a child was gone. I mean, can you imagine this kind of pain? I read this week of a couple who struggle with barrenness, and this is how they describe their pain of barrenness. It's that strange grief which has no focus for its tears, 
and no object for its love. It has no focus for its tears and no object for its love. That's the kind of grief of barrenness. Christopher Ash says, there is no anniversary for barrenness on which friends might send a card of condolence, no grave to visit and remember, no photograph or name or memory of the child who never came. It's just emptiness, a notness, a joy that didn't come, a hope forever dashed. But here are two servants of God who believe the promises of God despite suffering one of the greatest disappointments that could ever befall a Jewish family. It was barrenness. But they were in really good company because Elizabeth is barren and a lot of other people have been barren too, like Sarah in Genesis, her daughter Rebecca, her daughter Rachel, Samson's mother, Hannah in 1 Samuel. Elizabeth is not alone, but no doubt this is painful and no doubt they've prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and asked God to give them a child. And we see in verse 25, if you read down, that this would have caused Elizabeth, it did cause Elizabeth to be looked down on. The word she uses is reproach or a disgrace. It carries with it social shame. This is how she felt because she was barren. To be a woman in these days and to be childless often carried with it horrific thoughts that she was worthless and had nothing good to contribute to society, right? It was, it was horrible. And even husbands could be counseled often to divorce a barren woman so they can go and start their own family. It's, it's evil, really. But look here, look at Zechariah holding up the honor of marriage, holding up the honor of his bride, this is the reality of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And yet, in the silence of God, they followed him into the dark valleys. And with their eyes, which they couldn't see, what did they do? They walked by faith. So we have a nation cast with the shadow of God's silence for 400 years. And we have a couple that's cast with the shadow of God's silence for at least 60, 80, more. We learn at least one thing here, that godliness in this world does not mean ease. Faithfully believing in and following God isn't a ticket out of pain and suffering. Uh, many of us here might be facing kinds of realities that would maybe be inserted into this kind of stuff, right? This morning, maybe you've been faithfully following God your whole life. I don't know, a year. But at some point in your life, maybe recently, maybe even this morning, you know, it seems like disappointment has just awaited you around every single corner. But whether that's personal or financial or physical or social, I don't know, maybe personally you're disappointed that you're not married yet. You know, you're still single. Or maybe you're married, but you're disappointed in your marriage. Right? Maybe you are disappointed in your ability to have kids. Or you're disappointed in how you've raised them. Or maybe financially or vocationally, you're disappointed with how long it's taking to break through in your current career path. Or you are disappointed that what you thought was the dream job has not met expectations. Or maybe you're disappointed in what feels like the long silence of waiting for the job to actually come. Or maybe physically, you're disappointed in how your health is failing or in how you are slowly watching the health fail of someone you love. Or maybe socially you're disappointed by long waits of experiencing deep friendship with other people. You long, right? You long for community to know and love other people, and you long for the people to know and love you. But you always feel like you're on the outside looking in. 
What's that thing that it feels like it marks you? It feels like a reproach, you know what I mean? Maybe it's not in the eyes of others, but you know it. At least it feels like it is. It just won't be lifted. You, you might pray a lot, like a lot, for a long time, but it still marks you. And what do you do in those seasons and stretches of time when God seems silent? When your circumstances aren't changing, do you move on from God? Do you walk by faith? Do you abandon your faith because you lost sight? Let me ask you, what, what if God actually broke the silence? What would you do? Well, that's what we see with Zechariah, and his response might be more relatable than you think. So this is the question we see next, is how do you respond when God speaks, actually? Because look in verse 11, what does it say? And there appeared to Zechariah an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Anybody seen an angel like that? It's pretty intense. Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers of their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Prepared. Guys, God shows up and he speaks in a big, clear, obvious way, and Zechariah is afraid, okay? Angels probably aren't these little cute, endearing things, right? Probably terrifying to a degree, you know, every time someone sees an angel in the Bible, they're terrified, you know, and that's what he is, right? He's in the, the inner court there, right? Like he's right outside of the Holy of Holies and he sees an angel and he's afraid and the response from God's messenger is what? Don't be afraid. Like it's really amazing because the one that we really should be afraid of that we, we do fear, we're told to not be afraid, okay? But then some of the greatest words that you could ever hear from God come in verse 13. What does it say? Your prayer has been heard. Your prayer has been heard. What prayer? What's God breaking the silence about? Is, is this the long-awaited answer to the prayer that Zachariah and Elizabeth would be able to conceive and have a son? Or was this some other prayer that Zechariah prayed as a priest that God would send the Messiah and restore Israel, which is what he's probably doing while he's in there, right? Well, the answer is both. Isn't this amazing? A prayer that Zechariah and Elizabeth had most likely given up on, having a child, God hadn't given up on it, right? God is giving Zechariah and Elizabeth a son, and he already has a purpose, and he already even has a name, right? They don't even get to use their favorite baby names that they've probably picked out for decades or whatever, right? Like, oh, we're going to name them, this, whatever. They don't even get to do that. He already has a name, right? And this name is a good one. It means it's John, which means God is gracious. God is gracious, and God is indeed being really gracious, isn't he? Because verse 14 says what? That they, Zechariah and Elizabeth, will have joy and gladness, but it continues on and says what? Many will rejoice at his birth, right? This boy, John, is going to bring joy to many people who aren't named mom and dad. And it's not just because they're excited for mom and dad to finally have a kid. 
And so we see here Gabriel, who we haven't even heard from in the Bible since the book of Daniel, elaborates on who John is and what he's going to do in verses 14 through 17. And he's really just quoting the prophet Malachi here, which again is the last time that we've heard from God, right? He's going to finally send the promised forerunner to pave the way for the Messiah to come. This announcement from Gabriel links the last promise of the Old Testament with the first promise of the New Testament. John is described as being great before the Lord, and this greatness is laid out to you in the following verses. What makes him great? What makes him a great man? He's filled with the Spirit, right? What's he going to do as a Spirit-filled man? Well, he will do what God loves to do. He's going to reconcile people back to God and to one another. Do you see that? He's going to turn people back to the Lord. Then it says, and turn the hearts of fathers to their children, which may be a way of saying he's going to reconcile all kinds of painful alienation. He's going to be like the iconic prophet Elijah who called people to repentance from their sin and faith in God. It's in this repentance that people are brought home in relationships with one another and with God. That's how this reconciliation works. It's, it's through repentance. It's turning to God and then turning to one another, right? No wonder there's going to be joy. No wonder people are going to be excited. He's going to bring people back to God. He's going to bring them home. John isn't home. He isn't the Messiah. He's just clearing the way for us to get to him, right? You can almost think of John like a pilot. Really, that's what he is. I don't know about you, but I mean, the holiday season, people often are flying. They're traveling, right? When I was in college, I would fly from Southern California back to Montana most, most trips, and I'd be so excited to see my parents and my sisters, you know, for Christmas and whatnot. And uh, I would get on a plane, and it was a pretty small plane. Not many people go to Montana, you know. And uh, it was one of those planes that when you land, the pilot comes out of the cockpit, and he stands there, and you walk by him, and you're like, all right, thanks for, you know. I, didn't, I never once saw a pilot standing by the cockpit and ran up with tears in my eyes and embraced him and said, thank you so much, you know. I'm so excited to see you, you know, that kind of idea. Why? Because the pilot is not home, right? He's not who I came to see, is he? Right? He's just the guy who, who got me there. He's the guy who prepared the way for me to actually see my, my, my mom and dad and my sisters and embrace them. They're the reason why I'm going there, right? They're, they're home. That's what John is doing here, guys. That's what he's doing. He wasn't home. So let me ask you, based upon these verses here, how do you prepare for Christmas? John's preparing a people to receive the Messiah who's coming, right? How do you prepare for the coming of the Messiah? Well, you, you, you turn your heart back to God. And then you turn your heart to your children. You repent of your broken and sinful ways in order that you would receive the true ruler of your heart, right? And then you seek reconciliation with your family or others who are painfully alienated from you. This is what we do while we wait. So, so God has answered Zechariah and Elizabeth's and all of Israel's prayer. God shows up. He breaks the silence. How does Zechariah respond? How would you respond to this? What's he do? Zechariah said to the angel, verse 18, how shall I know this? For I am old and my wife is advanced in years. He's a good, good husband, right? The angel answers him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. 
And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. It's an announcement. It's not advice. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Why? Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. How interesting and convicting is this? Okay, think about this. Zechariah is a holy man. He's blameless, right? He's in the holiest of all places on the earth. And he gets an angel. A word directly from God. And still, he doesn't believe. Right? Often we think, if God would just show up in a really clear way, I would believe. Then I'd believe. I don't know. You might be thinking too highly of yourself. Just like me. You know? Zechariah doubts. And what is Gabriel's response? I am Gabriel. You read the book of Daniel? I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. He gives him his job title, and he's like, are you serious? I am in the unhindered presence of God, and my job is to deliver his words. Did you see this? Zechariah is an unbelieving believer. That's what he is. Can you relate to that? We know that his response was unbelief because of what Gabriel says. You will not speak. Why? Because you did not believe my words. Think about it. Think about this. Israel rejected all of God's prophets in the Old Testament, and God was silent for 400 years. Zechariah rejects this word from Gabriel, and the result is his silence. For nine months, Zechariah will now sit in silence. He will have to ponder and contemplate this moment in every moment. It's a really gracious rebuke because this is a sign to him that this is going to happen, but it's also a sign that he didn't believe. You see, the reason why Zechariah didn't believe God was for the same reason that we find it hard to believe God today, our senses. It's our senses. He knows that he's old. That's his reason, right? He knows that Elizabeth is advanced in years, so all of his senses, all of his logic, all of his reason tells him, this isn't possible. This is impossible. Zechariah had to choose. He could go with the clear evidences of his life and his experiences and his senses, or he could go with the word of God. And how do you respond when, you, when God speaks? Are there things that you're going through, maybe painful reproaches that you experience you hear the word of God, but it's hard to receive it because your feelings and your experiences and your logic, they tell you otherwise. If you're anything like me, we build our, 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 our senses and our feelings and experiences. They drive what we believe is actually true, and it's often really difficult to believe. I can be an unbelieving believer. And if we're honest, we often don't really build our foundation on the word and the promises of God and what he's capable of, but our foundation in life is really built upon our experiences and our senses. That's what we do. But those are not big enough to, to hold you. Uh, we went tree hunting last Christmas. We found a place. It was the first time we found this place. I don't know, it was like $30 for whatever tree you get kind of thing. It was just like any height, and we've always paid by the foot. And so we're like, any height? And uh, so naturally... We're like, let's get the biggest tree we can, okay? So we got this tree. It was probably about 10 feet tall. 
We brought it home. I was like, this will be fun. It was like bending over when it's hitting the ceiling. We're like chopping it down, that kind of thing. We got this thing up. It was pretty majestic. All the trees I've ever had in my life, it was pretty majestic. It was awesome. I was a little unsure about it, though. I was just like, ah, this thing seems a little too big, but hey, it's pretty cool. We decorate it, fill it with water. We do all the necessary things that I'm sure you guys did maybe this weekend or you're going to do today or whatnot. We go to bed, middle of the night. Largest crash I've ever heard in my life. Either an army was breaking into our house or something else happened. We run downstairs. This epic tree had fallen over. Ornaments were broken. Water's everywhere. I'm half awake, right? This is miserable, okay? And right then and there, I, I realized I have a huge problem. I never thought about it, but my tree stand was not big enough to hold this tree. It could only hold trees up to eight feet tall. Whoever reads that kind of stuff, right? I'm like, it's a tree stand. They could do the job. What I had to do, I had to go get a bigger tree stand. And I went and I bought a bigger tree stand, put it in. The tree held up fine. It was awesome, okay? The, the tree stand was not big enough. My foundation for that tree, it was not big enough to hold the tree. And it fell over. I, it worked for a little bit. It just, it just fell over eventually. It wasn't big enough, right? That's what Zechariah is being confronted with here. His foundation was, wasn't big enough. He, he's relying upon his senses, and what he thinks is possible. I love this quote from Samuel Rutherford. It says, believe God's word and power more than you believe your own feelings and experiences. Your rock is Christ. Your foundation is Christ. And it is not the rock which ebbs and flows, but your sea. I don't, I don't build my foundation on my own feelings and experiences, what I think is, is possible. I build it upon the rock what is possible with God. And so now we have Zechariah. He has nine months to talk less, to listen more, and to give himself the time and space to meditate on this announcement of good news that was hard to reconcile with his experiences. He needed a bigger tree stand. So here we see an unbelieving believer, and many of us can resonate with that, but the story concludes by moving back to Elizabeth. And here is where we get a glimpse of what God does when he speaks. What does God do when he speaks? Look at verse 21. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus says the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me, take away my reproach among the people. You see, it didn't matter what Zechariah thought was possible. It just didn't matter. God isn't hindered by what you think is possible or not possible. He still acts. What he says, he will do. And God speaking is God acting. Right? Elizabeth conceives and she cries out with these words, don't miss them. The Lord has what? Looked on me. All those years when God was silent, she's wondering, does God see me? Does he care? And Elizabeth had waited for so long. Right? She's enduring the disapproval, the snickering, the disappointment, the reproach of other people, and here she knows God sees me. Isn't being seen a powerful thing? Right? You might be at a place right now wondering if God sees me. God sees you. I remember uh, when 
my daughter broke her hand a couple years ago. It was awful just watching her writhing in pain and bawling her eyes out, and I'm carting around to urgent cares and emergency rooms. And there's nothing worse than someone you love going through pain like that, and you can't do anything about it. You, your compassion level is like through the roof, right? I mean, you just wish more than anything that you could help, that you could do something. And the entire time that she's going through all this pain, like everybody says, but it's so true, I'm like, I wish my hand could be broken instead of hers. Like, I would gladly have my hand broken over hers, right? But I can't do anything about it, can I? But my compassion level's really high. That I would really do it if I could, if that was even a thing, but I'm powerless to do anything, right? So God sees Elizabeth. His compassion level, that's great, right? But can he even do anything about it? Does God only see her? Is he just a compassionate God, yet he's not powerful enough to do anything? Well, not at all, because she finishes by crying out with the same words that Rachel in Genesis uses. But Rachel said these words when she actually held her baby. Elizabeth says these words before she even holds her baby. What does she say? God has taken away my reproach among the people. You might say, that's good for Liz, right? But my circumstances aren't changing like hers. Cool story, not my story. But the good news is that God doesn't just see you this morning. He's powerful enough to do something about your reproach. And he already has. Do you see the whole picture of your life? It's actually very intimately connected to this story. Because a woman, Elizabeth, who was despised and rejected by society, was having a son who is going to pave the way for the one who is going to be despised and rejected by those who came, that he came to save. You are seen, actually, your reproach is being lifted. Whatever marks you because of your sin or just because of a result of sin being present in our world and suffering at large, right? It's being lifted because it's already been lifted and placed upon Jesus. I mean, if you don't believe me, you can hopefully believe the Bible. It says in Romans 15, 3, that for Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Paul's just quoting Psalm 69 which has this language all over the place. What's he referring to? What were the reproaches that were placed on him? Well, the author of Hebrews helps you here. It says, for Jesus also suffered outside the gate, referring to his death on the cross, in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Well, that would be you. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured outside the camp and what he experienced, right? My friends, Jesus knows silence in a more deafening way than you ever will. He bore your reproach on the cross and he received the deafening silence of God when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? No answer. Like God put our reproach on Jesus so that he could take yours away. This is the gospel story. What does this mean? Well, it means that now when you wait, you wait in hope, knowing that God sees you and hears you, and one day will lift your reproach because of Jesus, right? When God seems silent and your circumstances are not changing, when you are crying out to God and are tempted to lose faith and move on with a hardness of heart, your heart might be saying, God can't answer my prayers now, or my senses and logic can't make sense of anything else. You cling to the promises of God, and you lean into your rock which doesn't ebb and flow like the sea of your circumstances does. 
You see, we wait in this in-between very differently now, don't we? Because although my senses don't always see the end, I know where this road is taking me. Like, I know it. It's like if you've never been to Crown Point. Crown Point's like my favorite place in the world. If I've never been to Crown Point, and I was like, hey, how do I get to Crown Point? I heard it's pretty cool. And you're like, well, here, type this into your phone, and you gave me directions, look for these signs, and I headed out to Crown Point today. I can't see Crown Point, can I? But I'm looking for the signs. I'm trying to stay on the road. I'm, I'm, I'm listening to your words. I'm cleaning these things because I know where this road takes me, don't I? This is what Zechariah and Elizabeth are doing. They're clinging to the promises of God as they walk this road with him. I, I, w- I wanted to have this. I did have this huge list of promises that I was going to read over you this morning. Be like, guys, these are all the promises for you and God. And then I was like, well, you might get, I don't know. Maybe you want to get bored. I, maybe I'm doubting you too much. I don't know. But I had this huge list of promises just to read over you. Be like, isn't this amazing? But guys, suffice it to say, the best promise that he gives us is not things. It's not a spouse or kids or a changed circumstance. He gives you himself. I mean, doesn't Christmas mean God's with us? He's who you're promised. And we're waiting for him with the promise that all will be made new. There will never be the experience of circumstantial silence ever again. I get to take my kids to Disneyland this February. I love Disneyland. Didn't Walt say there's a kid in all of us or something? I'll blame it on him. But it's really fun to take your kids, okay? Uh, I love Disneyland, but one thing I don't like about Disneyland is what? It's the lines, right? It's the waiting. But let me tell you something. Waiting is a part of Disneyland. It just is. If there wasn't waiting, it probably wouldn't be that great, would it? You're like, why is no one coming here, you know? Let me tell you, you wait very differently in line depending on, one, the ride that you're waiting to get on, and two, whether or not you have to wait for it alone or whether you get to stand in line with people that you know and love. If I'm waiting for a ride that I don't want to ride, like it's a small world, naturally, it could be a 20-minute wait, maybe five. Who likes that ride, you know? Sorry if you like that ride. I shouldn't have said that. But if you're waiting for it's a small world, 20 minutes can feel like days, you know? Then you're on the ride. You're like, can this thing end? Is it over yet, you know? I feel like one of my kids. feels like an eternity. I'm not excited for the ride. But if I had to wait an hour for Splash Mountain or something like that, right? I mean, it's going to be fine, isn't it? Might cook right along, you know? Who knows? Because Splash Mountain is what? It's amazing, right? See, waiting is the natural result of our fallen world. You're not alone. But it's a world that's being redeemed. And it's a world in which God is not silent. And this line that you're waiting in, it's really worth the wait. So while you wait, think about what you're waiting for. That'll change how you wait. It's knowing what's coming. And while you wait, realize you're not alone in line. You see, as the people wait outside for Zechariah to come, for him to come out, as they're out there hoping and praying, maybe, maybe God said something. 
Guys, one day Jesus will come again in that outer court, as it's described in Revelation, it's gonna inhabit people from all tribes and languages and nations, people like you who have endured the long silence of God and have longed for the second advent of Jesus, but we don't long without hope today because God has not been silent. May we hold on to him and may we hold on to one another while we wait in our circumstantial silences. Let's all stand together as we pray and go into our time of response. God, we're so thankful that you have spoken to us in your son, Jesus. And I pray this morning, God, that no matter what it is that we're going through that feels like silence, God, as we... We're searching for hope today. May we once again be confronted with the hope that we have in Jesus and realize that you're the one we really are searching for. God, would you point our eyes to you? Would you point our eyes to the world that is coming because of Jesus' first coming and what he came and accomplished for us? So would you cause our hearts, God, just to soar with adoration and hope for you this morning? And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Guys, every